following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we are at the halfway mark of Ephesians. So if you've been here since the beginning of the series, you've done well. We've, we've ascended the mountain and we're now at the summit. And in theory, it's all downhill from here. I don't know whether that's actually the case. Some of the most complicated stuff is actually yet to come, some of the trickiest stuff in Ephesians. But it has been a, a, a real climb up this incredible mountain, and the views have been pretty spectacular at times as Paul has just unfolded to us um, the riches of God's goodness and his grace and his, his mercy in our lives and the mystery of this thing called the church that we get to be a part of as well. So we're, we're right this morning, we're right in the middle of the book. Of Ephesians, and so it's chapter four that we're going to be in. But the good thing with Ephesians is that as a book, it divides really neatly into two halves, and that's nice for us as readers chapters one to three and chapters four to six, nice and easy. And the connecting point between those two halves is this little verse at the beginning of chapter four. And this is really the, the, the hinge, the big hinge on which both halves of this book turn. So quite an important verse. And Paul says at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So when he talks about this calling that we've received, really what he's talking about is everything he's just been describing to us. That's the calling. This, this calling he has unfolded with incredible eloquence over the first three chapters, that we are called to be children of God, that we are called into blessing, that we're called into relationship with God. We are called uh, to, be, to be chosen, to be loved, to, to receive grace, and we're called into the church. We're called into this new humanity uh, of the church, this mystery of the church, where Jew and Gentile and all people and all nations can be one in Christ Jesus. This is our calling. We have this incredible, extraordinary calling in Christ Jesus. That's chapters one to three is the calling. And now Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what God calls you to do, is to live in a manner worthy of that calling, which is a pretty tall order. Uh, and the word live that he uses there in that verse, the word live is literally the word walk. In fact, some of your translations might say walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. And, and so what Paul is saying is you've had this extraordinary calling. God has called us, and now God calls us to walk it out, which means, of course, to live it out to walk it out in our lives, walk it out in our relationships, walk it out at home, walk it out at church, walk it out in our social circles, walk it out when no one's watching, uh, walk it out in, in the depths of our character, walk it out in our church life, walk it out. Uh, and, and that's the second half of Ephesians, is this, this walk that we are called to do. And so that's really the, two, that's the best way to understand Ephesians, is the first half, God calls the second half, we walk. That's, that's how this book, that's how the, the, the flow of Paul's thought goes. There is the calling and there is the walking. 
And it's not that our walking leaves God behind. This is all of grace. It's all with God and, and in his strength. But that's, that's the book that we're walking through is the God calls us. And now we are starting to figure out what that looks like for our walk. How do we learn to walk this out, this incredible calling? How do we walk it out in our lives? I remember when our middle son, Lawson, was learning to walk. And one of the things that we do is because uh, he had an older brother, Josh, at that stage. And Josh was, I think, two and a half at this point. So one of the things we'd do was me and Anna and Josh would get in a triangle and maybe, maybe a, a couple of meters apart. And we would put Lawson in the middle of the triangle and we'd try and encourage him to walk. And so you'd sort of prop him up and steer him towards someone else and off he'd go, and he'd sort of toddle along, you know, and then kind of collapse onto Josh. And he thought this was hilarious, and Josh thought this was hilarious. And then Josh would kind of pick him up and put him back on his feet and then point him towards Anna. And away he'd go toddling away to Anna and then collapse onto Anna. And then so on. So we just sort of bounce him around the triangle. And this was one of the things that we did to try and help him to learn to walk. And, I mean, this is similar for all of us, right? The way that we learn to walk is in the context of family, that's how it is. That's how it was for you. Maybe not the same game, but you didn't just get up one day and decide to walk, probably. Probably your mum, your dad, your older siblings had something to do with it. Probably you were helped. Probably you were nurtured. Probably you were encouraged. And this walk was something that they helped you to figure out what that, what that looked like and what that meant. And this is what Paul is saying in this chapter, is that as we learn to walk as Christians, the way in which we learn to walk, the way in which we should learn to walk, is in the context of family. It's in the context of our spiritual family, which is the church. And so the first thing that Paul does when he comes to talk about our walk, immediately he talks about the church. Straight away, as soon as he thinks about Christian walk, he thinks church. And we might not think that because our individualistic culture makes us think our Christian walk is just something that we do on our own. So if I ask you how your Christian walk's going, you might say, well, you know, this and that about reading the Bible or praying or whatever. But Within the biblical world, our individual walk is so inseparably tied to the body of Christ that we are part of, so that the church family is intended to be the primary context where our faith is nurtured, where we learn to walk. We learn to walk in the context of this family, where we've got people around us encouraging us and supporting us and picking us up when we collapse and setting us back on the right path again. And others that in turn we can help and we can support, which is also part of our walk. That's how we learn to walk. And that's how we keep learning to walk because this is something that continues, doesn't it? Learning to walk as a Christian is not like learning to walk physically where once you've got it, you've got it. Learning to walk as a Christian is a lifetime. It's always something we're growing in or should be growing in. Learning to walk more and more. Learning to walk in a, more, in a way that's more stable in a way that's more, more competent, more mature. This is always God's work within us, teaching us to walk, and his desire is always that this is worked out and nurtured in the context of the church. So what Paul's going to talk to us about in this passage is how we learn to walk in the context of the church family that God has placed us, how our individual walk connects with the church. So when you look at this first half of chapter 4, what I want to do is focus in on verse 7 and onwards, in this, this passage that Paul says, and particularly on this quote that he puts right in the middle of this passage, right in the center here in verse 8. 
He includes a quote from the Old Testament, which might seem like quite a random quote at first, but what he's doing with this is laying a foundation. I want to lay this foundation with you and look at this, and then it's going to work itself out and become practical. So hang on in there, and we will get there. He says in verse 8, this is why it says, meaning Scripture says, meaning the Old Testament says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, that does sound quite disconnected. That doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with church or my Christian walk or anything. It sounds very random, but there's a reason. There's a purpose for this. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 68 in the Old Testament, so coming out of one of the Psalms. And you can probably hear the language behind this, when you just look at those three lines that Paul quotes there, the language behind all this is the language of a military victory. So this is a king. You've got to picture it. There's a king who's gone off to war. And this was common in in the Old Testament, right? So if it's Old Testament, you're thinking one of the Israelite kings that's gone off to war, leading the army out uh, to battle against some enemy nation of Israel. And they've won the battle. And if there's any of those enemy soldiers that have been left alive, they've taken them as prisoners of war. They've taken them captive, which was common. And so those prisoners would be led in chains and the army led by the king would come marching back to the city of Jerusalem victorious, having conquered their enemy, having won the battle. And as the residents of Jerusalem looked out and saw the king returning and saw the army returning, they knew the battle had been won because here comes our king back to us. They knew that peace had again been secured for Jerusalem and they were overjoyed and they would come out of the city and they would come and meet the army and the king and they would cheer and clap and applaud and so on and form this procession of people that would then come with the king and his army back into Jerusalem and they would ascend the hill towards the old city of Jerusalem. That's where the idea of ascending comes from, that Paul quotes those lines. He ascended on high. The king would ascend Mount Zion, winding his way up the hill towards the city of Jerusalem, leading his army and leading those captives right at the end of the procession who were still in chains. And they'd get to the temple in the center of the city and have a great celebration, uh, sacrifices made uh, to celebrate the fact that there had been victory. The king had been victorious and God had protected Jerusalem. Now that's the image that's going on. That's the, that's, the, that's the background that Paul is using here. And of course, Paul is writing to non-Jewish people in the first century who weren't really familiar with any of that Old Testament background, but they were certainly familiar with kings winning battles. They were certainly familiar with that because they lived in the Roman Empire after all, and that was all about military victory and military might. And they knew of Caesar going off and winning his battles and coming back. And the same thing would happen. The Romans would come back and the king would lead a great procession and they'd wind their way into the center of Rome. Except in that case, it was even more brutal that when they got to the middle of Rome, that's where they'd execute the captives, uh, which is not the Old Testament background. But this this was the way it worked in Rome. So this was familiar stuff to people in the first century, this image of a, of a great victory, a conquering king, and a battle that had been won. Now, why does Paul use that quote? Why does he use this kind of imagery? Why does he tell that kind of story? Well, what he's doing is taking all of that and he's applying it to Jesus. Not to you and me in the first instance. This is, this is why it's foundational stuff. He's applying it to Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is like one of those kings, but so much greater. 
Jesus has won a victory, which is far greater than any of those kings or Caesar has ever won. Jesus has won a victory over sin and death and Satan and hell and all the forces of darkness. He's won this incredible victory, the ultimate victory. And in a sense now, all of those enemies of God are captive to Christ. He's taken captives. Death is captive to Jesus. Sin, in a sense, is captive to Christ. Even Satan, in a sense, is captive now to Jesus. His power has been robbed from him. He's been cast down. All the powers and principalities of darkness, captive to Jesus now. He is the conquering, reigning, victorious king. And then as this conquering king, Jesus ascends on high. And of course, what Paul's talking about there is, is Jesus, he's not physically ascending to Jerusalem. He's ascending from earth to heaven. After his death, after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and he comes before the throne of God and he is exalted as Lord of all, as King of kings. He's given all authority over heaven and earth. He fills the universe with his power and he is declared Lord over everything. So this is a picture in the first instance of Jesus, the reigning, supreme, conquering, victorious King. But here's the thing, and this is where it starts to get practical, okay? When Paul uses this quote and takes it out of Psalm 68, he changes one little word. Now, you and I can't do this. We're not allowed to take our Old Testament and start changing words. But Paul does. That's another sermon. That's another story. But he, but he does. He changes a word. And I don't know, Murray, whether we've got that slide where we put the two quotes side by side, just so you can try and see. Now look at that. There's, at the top is the Psalm 68 quote from the Old Testament, and then at the bottom is where, has how Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. Now other than the fact that he's changing you to he, can you see the key word that he has changed? Yeah, in the last line, right? So in Psalm 68, it says... You, talking about the king, you received gifts from people. But when Paul uses it, he says, and gave gifts to people. And this is what he's going to unpack. So he's saying Jesus is a, a totally different kind of king to all these other kings that you know. He's different to the Old Testament kings. He's diff way different to Caesar. Jesus, all those other kings, you know, they, they took from you. And this was quite common. The kings would be showered with gifts and showered with tributes and people would come and give their gifts to the king and give homage and pay tribute. And that was all normal. But Paul is saying Jesus is different. Jesus wins this victory, this incredible victory over all things. And then he turns around and he gives gifts. And he freely gives. It's like he gives away the spoils of war. He gives away the bounty of what he has won. He doesn't hoard it in some treasure closet somewhere, but he gives everything that he has won to his people. And this becomes the foundation of Paul talking about the gifts that God gives to his church for the building up of the body of Christ. But this is where it comes from. This is why the foundation is important because when we come to start talking about the gifts that we have, and we'll do this in a minute, but the foundation is important because it's easy to think, oh, these gifts, you know, they're, they're sort of peripheral stuff. It's not that important. This is kind of, you know, take it or leave it. 
you know, I use it or don't use it. God doesn't really care. This is sort of a sideline issue. No, for, for Paul, for, for God, this goes right back to what Jesus has purchased for you on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus has purchased your salvation, but he has also purchased these gifts. It's part of grace. It's part of what Jesus has won for you on the cross. It's not just grace, but gifts that he now gives to you. He now gives to his church so that we would be a different kind of community. We would be a community where it's not just this military leader lording it over everybody else, but a community where everybody is involved, everybody is gifted, and everybody is called. So Paul is wanting to say these gifts are really important and they trace all the way back to the cross. They are part of what Jesus has won for you there. Now, what are these gifts that we're talking about? What, what do these gifts look like? Well, Paul kind of unpacks it a bit more in verse 11. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, what Paul is describing here is the leadership giftings in the early church. It's a fascinating insight into how the church worked. These five gifts, and I don't think there's any ranking of the gifts, there's just these five gifts, and they formed the leadership giftings within the first century church. So the apostles planted churches, and the prophets spoke the word of God to the people, and the evangelists proclaimed the gospel to non-believers, and the pastors shepherded the flock, and the teachers taught the word of God and explained the apostles' teaching. And they all worked together in this matrix of leadership. And Paul is saying, God has gifted you, these leaders in the church, to do these things and to, to, to help you and to support you. And in the same way today, I think all of these gifts are operating today. I think they look different today to the way they looked in the first century. I think they function differently today, and we won't go into that, but they, they are all there in some form today. But the point is, God continues to give gifts of leadership to his church. God keeps giving leaders to his church. He's given leaders to this church, hasn't he? He's given elders. He puts shepherds in place to shepherd, to oversee the church. Uh, he's put pastors in place to lead ministry, to, to shepherd, to encourage you, to help you grow in your faith. Uh, he puts key ministry leaders in place, not about being paid or unpaid by the church, but having a, a place of leadership, a place to lead within the body of Christ. God keeps giving these leaders to the church today, but the point is to look at their purpose. What is the purpose of these leaders? And it comes in verse 12. Paul says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The key word there is equip. The, the reason that leaders are given to the church, the reason we have leaders at all, is to equip God's people for works of service. And this came home to me a few years ago when we brought uh, Michael on staff, Michael Hansen on staff uh, at Shaw. And I, at the time, I was reflecting on something that has happened historically at Shaw, and we were trying to figure out how to avoid it when we brought Michael on. And, and, it's this, and I say this with all respect, but what was happening was that often each time that we brought a pastor on staff and hired a pastor, uh, sometimes other people already serving in that ministry area would kind of take a step back and would say, right, well, this is great. Now you're here. Thank goodness you're here because now you're the one. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the called one. More importantly, you're the paid one. 
So now you do all of this stuff and I will quietly hand in my resignation, thank you very much, and just go back to being a, a spectator or go do something else because I was helping out for a while. But now that you're here, thank goodness, I'm out. Great, here you go. Here's the, here's the instructions and away you go. And so we found that we were getting ourselves into a situation where really pastors were coming in and just doing a whole lot of stuff that volunteers were doing. And in fact, we were in a worse position. Now, the only difference was now we were having to pay someone to do it. We weren't getting ahead. We weren't adding any value. We weren't moving forward. And so when we hired Michael, I came up with what I thought was a really clever title. We, we called him Equipping Pastor. I don't even think he really likes it. But I called him that because of this verse in the Bible. And this word, because it was on my heart so strongly at the time that what we desired to have in Michael and in any pastor was not just someone who would come in and do things that other people were already doing, but someone who would equip you for the work of ministry so that we didn't keep perpetuating this idea that the real ministry is just done by the professionals. And I think this is a problem in the way we think about ministry today, that really the real stuff is done by the paid professionals and the rest of us just help out around the edges. That way of thinking is about 600 years old and it goes back before the Reformation. That's how it was when there was this huge split between clergy and laity and the clergy were the ones who did everything and the laity were the passive spectators of ministry. So passive they didn't even have the Bible in their own language. That's how it was. And I worry a little bit that in the modern church, we are returning in some ways to this idea of professionalizing ministry to the point where if it's important and valuable, it really needs to be done by the staff and the pastors and the rest just kind of just do bits and pieces to help out around the edges. According to Scripture, the role that leaders have, and they do have an important role, but the role that leaders have is not to do it all, but to equip the people of God. In a sense, the role of leaders is to hand ministry back to the people of God to do the work of God, to equip, to empower people, to enable people, to release people, to encourage people, to draw out the gifts that are already there within the whole body of Christ, because it's not just leaders that have gifts, right? It's not just leaders. It's all of us. All of us are gifted. All of us are called. All of us are ministers. All of us are part of the body of Christ. You might not think this. You might not have, have, have realized this. But we all have gifts. And we're all called to serve. I think we've been done a little bit of a disservice when it comes to talking about gifts. Because I remember when I was growing up, well, maybe when I was in my 20s, and there were these things floating around called spiritual gift assessments. Have you, some of you gone through these? And they, I mean, they were well-intentioned, weren't they? But what often happened is you'd, you'd sit down with someone and they'd say, now here's the 27 list of, lists of you know, gifts, the 27 gifts that are available to you from the New Testament. Please choose three or please rank your top five or whatever. And you'd look at these gifts and think, well, I don't know. Um, for some people, maybe it was obvious. Others thought, well, what if I've got a gift that's not on the list? You know, is there any chance that there's anything else available? Is there extra books in the Bible that maybe mention some others? Or I don't know, you know, what happened? And the problem, I mean, this comes back, I think, to a problem of understanding some of those passages in the Bible like this one that mention some gifts. And there are other passages too. And the whole point is, all of those lists are just examples. 
They're nothing more than just examples of gifts, the kinds of gifts. Paul and the other biblical writers never intended to create an exhaustive list for us of all the gifts. The, the number of gifts and the range of gifts are as diverse as people themselves. So you can never compile a list of 27 of them. There's countless gifts that reflect the diversity of who we are as people, made in the image of God, right? Now, maybe in some ways that makes it more challenging to try and figure out exactly what gift you have. Maybe for some of you, you'd rather just choose from a list of five or ten or whatever. But I think this is the challenge and the, the adventure for us is discerning, well, what gift do I have? The other day, someone brought into the church office some ginger muffins. I did not know that ginger muffins existed. I didn't know there was such a thing. I don't know how I've lived 40 years and not realized ginger And I didn't realize how good they were either. I don't know who you are out there, ginger muffin person. But I'm going to tell you right now, you have the spiritual gift of baking. You have the spiritual gift of making ginger muffins. I don't care if it's not in Ephesians. I don't care if it's not in the Greek. You've got that gift, my brother or sister. And I'm happy to be the recipient of that gift any time. So don't ever think that just because your, your gift that you think you might have is not mentioned in here doesn't mean it's not a gift. There's all kinds of gifts, right? I mean, you might have the gift of spreadsheets, and you love working with numbers, and that's just your thing. And you've always thought that that was just something that you liked to do or that you kind of had a bit of aptitude for. You never thought of it as a gift. You, never, you certainly never thought of it as spiritual or something that Jesus had given you. But according to Scripture, it is. A gift, in this sense, is any competency we have, any gift, any talent, any aptitude that you have that can be used for the building and the strengthening and the encouraging of the body of Christ. And of course, there's all types of areas where we can use our gifts. I'm not saying they only get used in the church. But at the same time, you can't avoid the conclusion as you read this passage, one of the primary ways God calls us to use our gifts is for the building up of the body of Christ. That's just what Paul says. That's how we are to use our gifts. That's how the church operates, is that the gifts come together and they're used to build up the church. But you could have any number of, of gifts, all types of gifts. You might have the gift of working with children, and maybe you never saw that as a gift, but it is. And there are obvious opportunities for that gift to be used in the building and the strengthening of our church community and ministering to children. You might have gifts in business and management, and maybe you sort of thought that's not really relevant. But the reality is, you think about the church, there is an organizational side to church life. There is infrastructure, there is policy, there is governance, there is a management framework. These gifts are important. And maybe there is an opportunity for you to bring those gifts and for them to be used in the body of Christ. Maybe you've got the gift of just walking alongside people and you love just journeying with people and, and having the, the, the cups of tea and just being in the lives of others and, and just speaking an encouraging word to them and you find that you're just able to kind of speak a word into a particular situation that breathes, breathes a bit of life into people. Wonderful. That's a gift. Claim it as a gift. Receive it as a gift. Acknowledge it as a gift, thank God for it, as a gift, and look around and see where can I use this gift within the body of Christ. The gifts are not just leadership gifts, and they're certainly not just public gifts. Often that's where we go. We think public ministry, and we think obvious visible gifts, but gifts come in all types and styles and shades and, and nuances, uh, and each of us need to take some time to think about what gift has God given me 
And where might I be able to use that in the body of Christ? There's a, a wonderful young man in our church community called Logan. He's a teenager, and he's had a hard life. He's had some real health challenges along the way, and, and he, has, he has battled on, and he is just growing into a wonderful young man. And he's been on this journey over the past few years of figuring out where his place is in using the gifts that God has given him. And he started off on the multimedia laptop down there where Murray is, on the AV desk, and from there transitioned into helping in the boost area in the same kind of way and some of the technical things. And from there, he's transitioned into our intermediates ministry. And he has a group of intermediate kids, intermediate boys, some of you are probably here boys, that have Logan as your leader. And he has just found his place. The boys love him. And they look up to him and respect him. And Logan loves it. And it's so good for both. It's so good for Logan to be in that place where, where he's serving and this is, this is blessing him and it's helping him grow in his faith. This is helping his walk as a Christian. And it's an amazing blessing to these boys that he spends time with week in, week out, just encouraging them and, and just being there, just being present with them is speaking volumes to them and encouraging them in a really transitional time in their life. And it's been wonderful to see the way that Logan, through a process of kind of experimenting and just finding his way, has now found an area where he is fitting and thriving and belonging and serving and using his gifts. If you don't know what gift you have, then we would love to talk with you about that. Please don't think, well, I'm not sure, so I won't do anything. If you don't know, if maybe you do kind of have a sense of what you're good at and what you're gifted in, but you don't know quite how to connect that to what's going on around here. Uh, fine, let, let's have the conversation. We're, you know, our staff team, elders, we'd always love to have a coffee and just help you figure that out. That's our equipping role. That's, that's our job, is to sit down and just help work that through and help you get connected, not to force and not to coerce. Lord willing that you, you are just... Um, willing and able and encouraged to be in ministry rather than being cajoled into it. But we would love to have the conversation with you about what this can look like and how you can begin using the gifts that God's given you to be part of strengthening this body here at Shaw. Let me point one other thing out before we leave verse 12. Where Paul says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That phrase, works of service, it just means any task, any job, any function, any role that is done to bless the church, to serve the church. And the reality is, here at Shaw, as with any church, there are many roles that do require a particular gift, that do require a particular spiritual gift. And, that, and that's fine, right? I mean, we're probably not going to have Michael Hansen leading worship. Probably, you know? I'm just saying. He's got his gifts, man. Don't get me wrong. But maybe, maybe that's not one of them. Or maybe he's still experimenting with those gifts, and maybe you will see him. But there are roles that do require particular giftings and skills and so on. That's great. Then there are a bunch of other roles that just require willing servants, right? So a lot of the logistics roles that go on here on Sundays, setting things up and packing things down and being on the morning tea and handing out the uh, um, bulletins and taking up the offering. These are not roles that require any particular spiritual gift. They just require people who are willing to do works of service because that's important too. In fact, if we're not careful, we can use our gifts as an excuse not to serve. And I've seen this happen too, where people say, no, no. And I've literally had people say this kind of thing. I don't feel that packing up some chairs would be a good use of my gifts. 
and you can become a bit precious about it. You know, and you just want to say, and I didn't say it, but I should have said it. Um, it's really not about you. It's not about you. This is actually about God and his church and doing what's required to serve his church. Sometimes, yes, that'll mean you're right in the zone and you're using your gift and that's fantastic. Other times, you know what? It's just being part of a family, isn't it? It's just recognizing we're in a family and part of being a family means taking responsibility and just being available to help and to serve and to do works of service. They might not be the most glamorous roles, but they just need to be done. We, uh, every night when we pack up with our boys, we pack up the toys, and it comes as a great surprise to them every night that the toys need to be packed up, but every night they do. And we, we try, we're trying to instill in them this question for them to ask, what needs to be done? And we just say, boys, look around, and just you ask the question, what needs to be done? Don't just go pack that up and then come back to me and ask for the next one. You are, what needs to be done? Look around, what needs to be done? And isn't that a good question for us to ask in the church? Just look around and ask, what needs to be done? What are some of the roles? What are some of the things that just need to be done? Where can I help? Where can I serve? So think about this on two levels. On one level, how has God gifted you? How has he called you? How can you use those, those gifts and those talents in the body of Christ? And then level two, what are, what, what are some works of service? Where can I just roll up my sleeves and be a, fa- a functioning family member and engage in a work of service? Be on a roster, help with a team. It takes 60 people to do what we do on a Sunday morning here across the board. Put them on a monthly roster, 240 people, just to make church happen on a Sunday. That's aside from everything else that we do during the week. That's just Sunday morning. So there's a whole lot of works of service going on in there. Where can you get involved? Where can you be a part of it? And you're not doing it to just help someone out, remember? You're not doing it just to lend a hand. You're doing it because we're a family. And we're all brothers and sisters together. And we all share the load. And we're all equally responsible for being ministers and servants and using our gifts and doing works of service to build up the body of Christ. The end goal of all this, where it all heads, where it all should lead, is what Paul describes in verse 13. And I'll finish with this. He says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. God's vision for his church is that it would be like a functioning, healthy human body with every part working well, every part working right, every part doing its job so that the whole body is built up and is able to walk in a healthy way. And so the the question is not whether you are a part of the body. You are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of the body. Even if you don't identify with any church at all, biblically, you are still a member of Christ's body. You are. The question is, are you functioning as part of the body? Are you functioning as a healthy body member? Or are you just like a limb that's that's hanging limp? Are you just like a hand that's not working? Are you just like a leg that's just dangling there? Or are you willing to become a functioning body member, a functioning member of this body, so that the whole body is built up and becomes mature in Christ. That is the challenge, that is the calling, and we are taking great steps, and I know many of you faithfully serve, but this is the calling we have to continue to move forward towards maturity in Christ. Every member doing his or her part, so the whole body is built up. So I want to give you an opportunity as we wrap this up to respond. As, as you feel led and as you are thinking all of this through and responding to this passage and what God might be saying to you, on your seat, you've got a card there. 
And this is a simple way for you to express your willingness to serve. That's all it is. Uh, At this point, you're not even saying that you want to serve in a particular ministry area. You're just putting your name down and saying, I'm keen. Maybe some of you have never served in this church. Maybe you've been here for a long time. You've just never participated. You've come along plenty of times. You've just never started serving. Today is your day. There need be nothing else holding you back. You can step into this. Maybe you used to serve a long time ago, and you feel like I did my stint way back then. But, you know, the, the hand doesn't say, well, I used to function 10 years ago. I did a couple of years of working as a good hand, and now I'm finished. You know, the hand is a hand. And if you're a hand, be a hand. You know, continue, maybe find another place if you need to. But, but continue and, and, and continue asking, where can, I, where can I get involved? Maybe you're already serving, and God bless you if you are, and we appreciate that. I hope you're not doing it for, for me, for us, but hopefully for the Lord. But maybe you sense there's another step to take. Maybe you feel like, you know, I'm doing this, but there's something else. There's a way of maybe using my gifts here or stepping into this other area, or, or, or I'm open to just having a conversation about what else God might be saying to me in that area. If you're willing to write your name and an email or a phone number on that card, then that's just a starting point. Then one of our leaders will come back and we'll have that kind of equipping conversation and say, okay, what does that look like? And there will be a way, I promise you, of working it around your schedule, your family life, your other commitments, all of that kind of stuff. I know some of you are shift workers. Some of you feel like I just couldn't make this work. But let's just at least have the conversation and see where this may lead so that we're built up together to become the body of Christ. Let me pray and then we'll take a minute to fill those cards out. We're going to watch a video. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your church. And I thank you for the vision that you have for your church. Not that any human being, including Paul, ever had, but the vision you have for your church, Lord Jesus, of being that mature body of Christ. And I pray, God, that every one of us this morning would have that sense of being an equally valuable, equally important, equally significant member of Christ's body. I pray that among us there would be no lesser and greater and more important and less important, but that we would all recognize, Jesus, in you we are equally called, equally chosen, equally responsible for using our gifts to serve one another and build up your church. Father, I pray for any here who are not sure what this means and maybe just sense there's a step to take but don't know, I pray, God, that you would bring some clarity I pray you'd still give them the boldness to respond. Lord, for any here who have been burned in the past by bad serving experiences, I want to pray, Lord, that you would just come and bring healing and bring grace. And Lord, whatever would need to happen in that situation, but just would you soften their heart and open their heart again. And Lord, help them to see that your church is so far from perfect. In fact, it's pretty broken. But Lord, it's still the bride for which you died. It's still the church, and you love your church, and you call us to love your church too. Lord, for for any this morning that are just thinking of taking that very first step, Lord, would you help them to see where they fit and where they belong within this community of faith. Lord, I pray that nothing I've said this morning would add guilt to people's lives. I pray nothing would lead people into any sense of shame. I pray none of it would be legalism. I pray it would all be of grace. I pray it would all be of you and it would all be to serve the vision, Jesus, that you have of who your church is and what the church can be when it's truly being the church. So come and build your church, Jesus. We're in your hands. We are your servants. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.